Ephesians chapter 4. Today we'll be looking at the last three verses of that chapter, and I trust that you received the email to have a sort of a preview as to what we'll be looking at uh, yesterday. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline in your bulletin um, that you can follow along, sort of a roadmap to see where we're going. We do practice expository preaching here at Grace Bible Church, and we've been working our way through this wonderful book, and we come to this section that is very practical, and uh, we've been taking this uh, week by week, a few verses at a time, and seeking to apply this to our lives. So follow along as I begin at verse 30. Actually, I'm going to begin at 29 just to get the broader context, even though we covered that last week. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also forgave you. As we think about the words that I just read in the span of maybe 45 seconds or so, they're packed full of meaning, aren't they? And it reminded me this week of one of the hymn writers that are in our hymnal, Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby, many of you know of her. She was a blind songwriter. She wrote some 8,000 songs and hymns. Can you imagine that? That's, that's a life's work. Um, and the story goes, how she became blind, that she was sick and she had some eye infection. at six weeks old, I believe, and she was taken to a doctor, and he turned out to be a quack and put some potion in her eyes that made her permanently blind. Now, if anybody has, you know, would be tempted to bitterness, it would be her, right? There's countless other stories like this, but yet she had such a love for Christ, such a passionate longing for heaven that she forgave him. In fact, she was quoted as saying this, if I could meet him today, the doctor who made her blind, I would say thank you over and over for making me blind. She considered it such a gift that God helped her to write those hymns that bring such glory to God. One of the hymns in our book, 701, um, one of the um, verses goes like this, Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of His presence with me does continually dwell. And oftentimes she would write, I see, I see, but yet she's blind in this light that dwells within me. Well, what an example to not be bitter, to forgive. And, and that's really what we're going to be looking at today. And, and, and I, it's my prayer that as we get to the end of this, that the Lord will bring certain situations to the surface that we will go and deal with. Situations where reconciliation is needed. Let's pray before we jump in. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together again uh, to consider your word. And, and Lord, we confess that we are weak, we are helpless, we often grieve the Spirit of God, we often can be tempted to bitterness and anger, can often not freely and quickly forgive. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us, and we pray, Lord, that as we would read these commands, as we would consider them, that the Apostle Paul wrote 
and that we would see how they apply to our lives, that we would be a changed people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Well, very briefly, the context, again, the book of Ephesians, he has set forth in chapters 1 to 3 all of the wealth that we have in Christ. If you're a Christian today, you have riches beyond measure. You have more riches than used to be in Fort Knox. I guess they sold it all off. But uh, more riches than stacks and stacks of gold and diamonds because you are in Christ. You've been elect from before the foundation of the world, predestined, redeemed, and the Spirit has been given as a pledge. But now in chapters 4 to 6, he tells us how to walk. How do we walk? How do we behave? What does it look like for one with such riches to live in a lost and dying world? And that's what he's been unpacking. Last time we looked, him who steals, he's to steal no more. It's present tense, and and he he gives the motive to, to repent and to work hard and so that we might have something to share with those in need. Likewise, to put off rotten words, which is the literal translation of unwholesome, to put off all those rotten words, you know, whether it's cursing, slander, being overly critical, telling a crude joke, double innuendos, argumentative, backbiking, rude, disrespectful, boasting, and gossip. And rather, he says, speak words that will build up. Words that are constructive. Words that are encouraging. And so the way to do that is to fill our minds with the Gospel. That's what we talked about last time. To fill our minds with good things because this will be the natural overflow from our hearts. Paul, as he's giving these ethical exhortations, which began in verse 25, he's considered different groups. Remember verse 25, speak truth to your neighbor, right? It says, do not give the devil a foothold. He's speaking in regards to our words, that, we, that, that those who hear our words and that we would give to the needy one, the one who has need. And now he comes to the most interesting party, the Holy Spirit. And this phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is central to this section, verses 25 to 5-2. And so we're going to consider it under four simple points. Um, Very simply, the first half of verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. First of all, let's discuss for a minute, who is the Holy Spirit? Notice that he uses the full name, the Holy Spirit of God. As we know, he's the third person of the Trinity, and notice that it is a person. Look carefully in your Bibles. It should say, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, not by it you were sealed. Okay, so he is a person. Only a person can be grieved and sorrowful. A force cannot be grieved. You would agree with me, right? So only a person can be grieved. Jesus says in John 16, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you in all truth. Um, The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has feelings, that He searches all things, that He speaks in Acts 13 and verse 2. He testifies um, in John 15. He convicts the world of sin. He guides and ultimately glorifies Christ, as it says in John 16, and He will glorify Me, Jesus said. So the work of the Spirit is largely to glorify the Son. Some say in our day, well, the Holy Spirit's often overlooked. There's so much we pray to the Father and we pray in Jesus' name, but the Spirit's often overlooked. Well, I submit to you that the Apostle Paul does not overlook the Spirit. He refers specifically to the Holy Spirit 30 times throughout all of his writings. But there's another hundred that says, 
the Spirit in, its, in the context clearly implying the Holy Spirit of God. For example, there's two times in Ephesians only, this, this being one of them, where he speaks of the Holy Spirit. But there's ten times which clearly refer to the Spirit. Chapter 4 and verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, that grants life and that sustains it. He is the author of every good virtue that you have. And then, he says, do not grieve this Holy Spirit. And, and there's an and in the original, so it is connected to verse 29, but I think it's connected even going back further behind that. And the context here is in relation to rotten speech and lying and anger and stealing. And this is the powerful motivation Do not grieve this Spirit by those sins by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve Him. This is an imperative. It's a command. The word for grieve means to to cause severe mental or emotional distress. Uh, It can be translated irritate, offend, or insult. It's the word that's used of Jesus as He's in agony praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before going to the cross, when it says that he was deeply grieved and distressed. That's the word that's used. Brothers and sisters, when you pollute your mind with deceitful thoughts, vengeful thoughts, filthy thoughts, you are grieving the Spirit of God. You are grieving the Spirit if you're a Christian that dwells on the inside. Now, I'd like to ask you to turn back to Isaiah 63 for a moment. Isaiah 63, just turn back so you can see this. I want to give you the overall context of this so you can see how it fits. Why does Paul use this terminology? He uses because he has Isaiah 63 in mind. So I want you to look at this for a moment. You might have to put your thinking caps on here. Verses 1-6 to that our brother Deepu read for us, uh, just in summary, displays the messianic judgment and his victory as anointed conqueror. The prophet then focuses on God's past goodness and faithfulness, his merciful actions there in verse 8, clearly referring to the time of the Exodus. Um, Isaiah, written 7, 8th century B.C., the Exodus being years before that. Um, so he's referring back to that, looking back to that. In verse 8, for he said, Surely they are my people, the sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their Savior. Probably having Exodus 14.30 in mind. After the Red Sea where it says that he saved them. He is the Savior. In verse 9, clearly it says that the the Spirit of him was, was, was with them in the wilderness. In all their affliction he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In His love and in His mercy, He redeemed them and He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Wow, what a blessing. But how did the children of Israel respond? Verse 10, But they rebelled and they grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore He turned Himself and became their enemy and He fought against them. They rebelled. They grieved the Spirit of God because of their sin. And this is exactly what Paul has in mind here. In verse 14, look down there, as the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. 
yet he did not leave them forever. He still came to them and was with them and made for himself a glorious name. So what's the point of all this? The link between these two passages is very important. Isaiah is writing to the old covenant community, reminding them, speaking of, of the children of Israel of old and how when they were redeemed by God's powerful hand and and brought out of the land of Egypt and was ransomed and redeemed, that they, they grieved the Lord. And so Paul now applies this to the new covenant community. We too have been redeemed, but we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. We've been redeemed, we've been rescued. And Paul says, if you have such wealth and you've been redeemed, don't grieve the Holy Spirit like they did. Don't do it. You're in the new covenant community. In this, turning back to Ephesians 4, John MacArthur says, The Holy Spirit is sorrowful when Christians don't tell the truth and lie, when they're sinfully angry, when they're stealing instead of sharing, when they're speaking rotten words instead of building up the body of Christ. We have to be careful. Grieving the Spirit can lead to quenching the Spirit, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Quenching the Spirit where the Spirit withdraws His presence as it were, at least it seems like that, and your joy is just sapped. And you wonder why some Christians can get depressed. It's because they're grieving the Spirit by some sin and perhaps leading to quenching the Spirit. Charles Hodge says to grieve Him is to wound Him on whom our salvation depends. Though He will not finally withdraw from those in whom He dwells, Yet when grieved, he withholds the manifestations of his presence. So you see, it's our perception. He doesn't actually withdraw and leave. I'll come back when he's a good boy, and and I'll come back and dwell on the inside. But the, the sense of his presence, the manifestations of the Spirit's presence, are removed for a season. Why? Because of the consequences of your sin. But he will not ultimately leave you we do believe in perseverance of the saints he will not leave you one man has written grieve is a love word you don't grieve people who don't love you the holy spirit is grieved because we are objects of the love of the triune god the god who elected the god who redeemed the triune god who brought us to the knowledge of this redemption and regenerated us and came to dwell in us through his spirit so don't grieve the spirit of god what's the motive here moving to our second point you have been sealed by the spirit until the day of redemption you are sealed and protected if you're truly in jesus christ this is paul's motivating clause and this word here is a fascinating word listen to the lexicon definition of this the word sealed means and it's passive so it's something that god has done it's not something we do It means this, to mark with a seal as a means of identification, denoting ownership. It has the idea of authenticity and his stamp of divine approval. Isn't that a beautiful word? It's just packed full of meaning. And it's an indicative, so it's a statement of fact, an absolute certainty that if you are in Christ, you are sealed forever. You are protected forever. You have the stamp of authenticity upon you by the Holy Spirit of God. Only in two other places in the New Testament is this referred to. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Now he who establishes 
us with you in Christ and anointed us as God who also sealed us and gave the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The other place, of course, we considered in chapter 1, 13 and 14. It says, You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, a seal, when Paul would use this terminology, in the first century there were several things that would pop into their mind. Animals and slaves were often branded or marked by some type of seal or or brand uh, to denote ownership. Kings had the signet ring, and a wax seal would be put on a letter, and then that signet ring would be put there. And if that was broken, you knew you couldn't trust the authenticity of whatever was inside. It's, it was, it's the idea of guaranteeing the genu- genuine character of a document, that it's not a counterfeit. It shows ownership. For example, when you receive your DMV renewal or various state of California papers, usually there's the great seal of the state of California somewhere on that document. And so it's the idea of protecting from harm. If a letter was received with the wax seal broken, or even if you receive a letter in the mail and it's open, somebody had tampered with it and lifted the seal, you would question what was inside. A seal was used for security when uh, Pilate put a seal on the tomb where Jesus was buried. Now notice what Paul does not do. He doesn't threaten here that do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God or you might not be elect or you might lose your salvation or something like that, right? Paul does not do that. He gives a motive that we have been sealed by the Spirit. We have been forgiven so much. How can we grieve by our sin the one who is the comforter, the one that is the teacher, the one that is the advocate, the one that dwells on the inside. How can we grieve Him? He is the one that is the guarantee of our salvation, as I read in chapter 1. And He is the promise that you will persevere to the end. And then Paul uses this phrase here at the end of the verse. You were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, That's a, a phrase unique to Ephesians. A day of redemption is the same as the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. It is the last day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. That's what it's referring to. Romans 8.23, for not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. The command here is not to grieve the Spirit, is not to secure our salvation. We don't, it's not our doing. Don't grieve the Spirit so that you can earn brownie points with God. Our salvation is secure if you're truly in Christ. Now, we should qualify this, that if you have a pattern of living in habitual sin in some area and you might profess to know Christ, the evidence and the fruit, you shall know them by their fruits, Jesus said, is that you may not be in Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, who, who struggle and agonize with our sin and want to put it off and we want to please God and, and we're grieved in our own spirits when we sin against Him, that's an indication that you are truly in Christ. Romans 8.11, again, but the, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through His Spirit who dwells in you. Again, redemption was a term that would carry powerful um, meaning to the first century hearer here. Um, there was, this was a time when there was millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, and to, to the idea of redemption would be a slave that would be bought and set free. The ransom price has been paid. So we too, who were formerly held captive by Satan to do his will, have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. We have been purchased back And we are now free. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from the penalty of sin. We're free in Christ because we've been ransomed by Jesus Christ. And if you consider as you sin and you consider the great cost of your salvation, you consider that it wasn't just an animal sacrifice that secured your sin or a million animal sacrifices that secured your sin, but it was the blood of the sinless Savior, the Son of God, who came and never sinned. He never sinned, and yet He took all of our sin upon Himself on the cross. His righteousness is imputed to us. He kept God's law perfectly as we break it continually. Our sins were imputed to Him, and His righteousness is imputed to us. Someday, this complete ultimate redemption will come about. We will see our Savior face to face. And brethren, the Word of God says that it's a purifying hope to long for that day, to hope for that day, because He's coming and you will see Him face to face. 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are the children of God. You almost want to put a Salah in there, right? Like you see in the Psalms. Just meditate on that. Okay, we're the children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. It's a purifying hope to long for that day of redemption, brethren. It's a good thing to long for that. So, Verse 30, do not grieve the Spirit of God. You've been sealed by the Spirit and the day of redemption. Let's move on to verse 31. Put away sinful anger in speech. Let's read it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, as I read this, I see a progression of sin. We need to be aware of the deceptiveness of sin and how sin can progress in our lives. It almost sounds like a repeat of verse 29, um, as far as the unwholesome word, and, and verse 26, as far as being angry. The old adage that one sin leads to another is true. It does, doesn't it? Now, first of all, the verb, and again, an imperative here, a command, um, is right in the middle of the verse. Be put away from you. That's the, all of these things need to be put away from you, put far away from you. To take it away, to move it away. Um, It's a word that's used when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're to take these things away from our life. And what is it that he says? All of these thoughts, sinful thoughts and actions, and the first is this, bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness, resentment. All manner. If you look carefully, it says, in all bitterness. It's all manner of bitterness. You don't nurse a little bitterness in the left side of your heart while you relinquish a lot of the bitterness from the other parts of your heart. All bitterness. Take it away. Put it away. 
Bitterness is the opposite of sweetness. Sometimes children make homemade lemonade and they squeeze all the lemons and, and they get it there, but they put a teaspoon of sugar in a pitcher and that's just not enough, right? And so you drink and it's bitter. It, it's, it tastes bad, it's sour. That, that's the idea. Bitterness. Beware of nursing a grudge, a smoldering resentment that you have towards somebody. Beware of that. It eventually will affect your behavior. You see, I can't see... If this person, that person, this person, this brother has bitterness in their heart, there's not a big B that, you know, you know, beep, beep, I've got bitterness, and, you know, when it's really red, I'm really bitter or something. We can't see this. This, this, can, this is internalized. This is something we have to deal with before God. One man, Scottish commentator, Aedy, says this. I think it's helpful. It's a figurative term denoting that irritable state of mind that keeps man in perpetual animosity, that inclines him to be harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things. It makes him sour, crabby, repulsive in his general demeanor that infuses venom into the words of his tongue. And we'll see that as we get down a little further that it eventually affects the speech. People who are bitter usually refuse reconciliation. Somebody might even come to seek forgiveness, but I'm not going to grant it. I just want to nurse this. I want a root of bitterness to be planted and to grow. It's so contrary to what Paul's case has been in laying out how the body of Christ is to function and to work together with one another. Again, the Fanny Crosby you know, case, you know, completely free from bitterness. Made blind. She never knew anything but being blind. Well, the second word he uses is wrath. It's translated rage in the NIV. It's the idea of ventilating, a passionate rage, a short temper, a short fuse. Well, it's in my blood. I'm Italian. You know? That's not an excuse. I'm sorry. You know? That's not an excuse. <laughs> Anger is wrong. It is sinful. And it's amazing how the wife could be at home, uh, to use this illustration, you know, um, cooking dinner, dinner's on the stove, the kids are fighting, she goes to put out a fire, there's chewing gum on the floor, it's all in the carpet now, the food's burning, and she starts yelling, and then the phone rings. Suddenly, complete composure, good afternoon, <laughs> right? And so the point of that is this, is that you can control your anger, you can, because you can pull it together in that concrete situation and I, I'll pick on the men later but, <laughs> but, uh, but the idea of these two words wrath and anger wrath has the idea of the Greeks would think of like straw or I used the illustration with my kids last night of newspaper sometimes we'll put newspaper when we do a campfire and the newspaper does what and then it's like gone right in about a minute you know the flames and that's really what wrath is it's quick blowing off the top blowing steam and that kind of thing anger on the other hand is more settled in a sullen hostility. And it's the idea, I mean, Paul said, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. It's a settled disposition. Jesus likened hateful anger in the Sermon on the Mount to what? Murder. And so we can't be angry. And then notice what he says here. Clamor in the... Uh, in a, um, in a what I, NAS and uh, the net version uh, in New English translation has quarreling, and that's probably a better translation. 
Um, the word in the original is croque. It's the cry of strife. It, it's, it, it has the idea of violent outbursts. Now, you know, you've been bitter, you've nursed that for a while, little wrathful explosions, maybe slam a door or something like that. The anger continues, and now finally you have this opportunity, and it's a verbal, violent explosion, a heated verbal exchange. And now these words are flying, and they're right back and forth. That's the idea, quarreling, croaking like a raven, raising your voices in a quarrel, shouting and screaming. And again, you, you see this situation sometimes. Uh, you, you know, I mean, in the context of the home, it's just such a good place to talk about these things, isn't it? Because that's where these things often happen. But a father with his children, you know, raises his voice. Um, spouses, you know, there's, there's some offense that was made. You let the sun go down on your wrath, you know, or kind of stewing about it all day. And finally, this verbal exchange takes place. The Lord says, no, don't do that. That's grieving the Spirit of God. The last thing is slander. It's the word blasphema, which typically we think blaspheming is speaking against God. The word really just means to speak harm against anyone. It's often used in regards to speaking evil against God in the Bible. But um, Psalm 50, verse 20, you sit and you speak against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. It's the idea of speaking evil. Uh, It is a more enduring manifestation of inward anger and shows itself by reviling. And so, again, you see the situation. There's conflict in the home. There's an argument that hasn't been settled between husband and wife. The man goes to work. How was your day? How was your weekend? Maybe it's a Monday morning. Oh, you know, my wife's just so hard to live with, you know, or whatever. And, and then you can allow your words to start to slander her. That's the idea here. Speaking harm against anyone. You will be wronged. People will sin against you. And you really have two choices. Overlook it in love. Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter chapter 4. Just overlook it. (laughs) Don't exact your rights. Overlook it in love. Or to privately go to that person and confront your brother with the sin. And you work it out that way. You are not free to harbor bitterness. Did you see the way they said that at church, and how could that brother even say that to me? Boy, I'm going to stew about that all week long, rather than overlooking it in love, if it's a petty offense, or calling him or confronting him and talking to him in a loving way. Did you mean to say that? I took it this way, and oftentimes things can be resolved if you'll take that first step. And then the last thing he says here, um, let all of these five things be put away from you, and then he just kind of throws this word in, along with all malice. Along with all malice. It's a general term for evil. It's the root of all vices, and it's the idea of being vindictive. And so, as though, because I don't want to put too long of a laundry list here, but let me just add this as a (laughs) catch-all, okay? Put all of that away from you. Um, William Hendrickson says that this word, it's an evil inclination of the mind, the perversity and disposition, disposition that takes delight in inflicting hurt or injury to a fellow man. Now these sins are largely provoked by selfishness and thinking too highly of yourself than you ought. Um, oftentimes we can think, well, who do they think they are? You know, I'm the, I'm the director, I'm the board of directors at my corporation and 
How dare that peon, that you know, uh, apprentice, come in here and talk to me like that? You know, and we, 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 or with a husband and wife, or even in the church, we think we want to, we would just want to demand our rights. We have no rights. <laughs> we really have no rights. We've been forgiven so much. We're guilty, vile sinners, deserving eternal wrath. And the fact that we're forgiven and we're given the hope of heaven and the day of redemption doesn't mean that suddenly we have all of these rights. Now, um, I was reminded this week, I heard of this story before, Robert Louis Stevenson tells the story of two unmarried sisters in Scotland. They shared a single room. It was close quarters. Obviously, there would be conflict. Finally, there's a conflict with, between these sisters over, sisters over a point of theology, and they could not resolve it. And so they chose to not speak any words whether harsh or kind to each other. A chalk line went down the middle of the room, and so they lived for years, not having the means to separate. Every night they went to bed, as the story goes, I don't want to butcher this, they went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Thus the two sisters continued the rest of their miserable lives. What foolishness! What, what, what craziness! I mean, we hear that and we say, that's crazy, that's silly, but... But wait, we can justify when I'm going to be bitter about something for a few weeks, a few months, or a few years. And you can tell when somebody's bitter. If they're pulling stuff from 10 years ago, some event that happened, some argument, and they're pulling back there, they haven't forgotten about that. That hasn't been dealt with. Okay? And it is sad because there are many, even among Christians, who are estranged from one another. You know, we read that funny story about the sisters in Scotland, and, and yet there's Christians that, well, yeah, he's a Christian, my brother, but I haven't talked to him in 20 years. You know, I haven't talked to him in 15 years. Well, you know, we didn't get along growing <laughs> You know, it just ought not to be. Think of the conflicts in your life. This is really where the rubber meets the road. A spouse doesn't get his or her way. Um, becomes vindictive. And it's so subtle, isn't it? I mean, you know, men can say, well, I'm not going to wipe up the crumbs after getting a snack because she's being mean to me or something like that. You know, they're, they're just so silly sometimes, the justifications that go through our minds. Coworkers becoming unyielding in the church to people serving in a ministry and they can't agree on how the ministry should be done. And so all of a sudden there's friction and there's conflict rather than just coming to terms and dealing with it and being unified with it. What we need is more of a realization of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of us. That's what we need. He is the divine agent of reconciliation. He is the agent of unity, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 22. In whom you also, being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, each of us, individual building blocks into the temple of God, a living temple of God where the Spirit dwells. Well, we've seen Paul command us not to grieve the Spirit, the encouragement that we've been sealed for the day of redemption, then to put away these manifestations of anger, and now, finally, verse 32, cultivate a compassionate, forgiving spirit Let's read it again. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. 
First of all, be kind and tender-hearted. The, the, the word he uses here is a, it's an imperative again. Uh, it means to, it's to be or to become. And so literally, to bring into existence kindness and compassion to one another. Put off all the sins of verse 31. And, and you can only put those off, really, by cultivating the opposite virtues in our lives. It's not enough to stop sinning, to stop doing some sin, but you need to put on. Isn't that what he talked about earlier? As we laid aside the old self, now we put on the new self in the likeness of God. You see, you have to put on as well as put off. And so put off those things, but now put on kindness and compassion. To be kind means moral excellence. What is good and what is proper. To be kind is to be like God. I'm not saying to be God. It's to be like God. It is God-like. In fact, Romans 2.4 it is the riches of His kindness that leads us to repentance. It's what is good, what is virtuous, pleasant, what is mild. Uh, we are like the Father. In Luke 6.35, it says, For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Now that's at the end of the verse. Here's the beginning of the verse. Love your enemies, do good, and to lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind and ungrateful to evil men. You notice that motive that Luke puts there, that because God is kind to evil men, you too love your enemies. Even in times of difficulty and trial, you know, going through a severe sickness, we've, we're lost, we lost the house, we're living in an apartment, we're waiting for medical bills to be paid, settlements and all of this thing. The solution is not to become bitter and angry. I mean, look at Jesus Christ. He was in a predicament as He was on the cross in the last hours of His life. And if, you know, but there's no temptation to anger. What He does is He's ministering to others as He ministers to the thief. As He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Doing good unto the very end. Secondly, be tender-hearted. Literally, in the physical sense, the idea is, is to have healthy bowels. <laughs> that's really what it means. The inside of the organs. The, uh, that's where the seat of the emotions were. And so this word means to be compassionate, quickly moved to love, pity, and sorrow. To be quickly moved. Sometimes men have a hard time expressing their emotions. You know, they're reserved. You know, women might cry and, or whatever. Uh, but, you, you know, men sometimes. But it's good to express our emotions. It's good to be quickly moved to love and pity for others. To be tender-hearted. In the parallel in Colossians, which very similar themes between these two books, have mentioned it several times, in chapter 3 and verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. You see how close that parallels to the section we're in here. How much more peace there would be if the church truly could put on more kindness, more compassion towards one another. And then he says, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. To forgive is to freely and unconditionally give grace. Forgive has G-I-V-E at the end. To give grace. That's the idea. Forgive. To extend grace. And it's the present tense. This is something that saints 
should make a regular practice. Not a one-time thing here and there when I feel like it. It should be a regular practice ongoing, wholeheartedly, generously, eagerly forgiving. And this is so contrary to what the culture that we live in, because the culture that we live in is so lawsuit-happy, so vindictive, so uh, mean, and it often justifies sinful anger. It exalts revenge. Revenge is a noble thing, and this kind of stuff. But not in the church. Not in the church. People outside and inside the church will sin against you, but we must forgive one another. This is so important. A bitter person is resentful and reluctant to grant forgiveness. Foolish divisions take place. A lack of unity. You see it in certain churches. You say, in fact, just this last week, I've heard of another situation where a pastor resigned because of so much disunity within the church, a Reformed church like ours. It's grievous. It is sad. And we should bless the Lord. Deepu and I were praying earlier before the service thanking the Lord for the unity that He has given us, this season, this sweetness that we have of unity amongst us. But it's, sadly, it's not so everywhere. And in your own family, your own marriage, to be quick to forgive for Christ's sake. And then you consider Joseph. <laughs> Again, another example of somebody, you know, that Joseph in the Old Testament that, you know, here he is, he's sold off as a slave. His brothers are so mean. First they want to kill him, right? And then was it Judah, I think, that came, Reuben or Judah, that came to the rescue? No, let, let us just sell him. And years later, here they come begging for food. His dreams were right, right? And he just graciously forgives, weeping, wanting to grant forgiveness. And then finally, he gives this supreme motive here. Just as God and Christ has forgiven you, wow, That's a huge motive. This is your supreme motivation. Stop demanding your rights. You've been forgiven so much. How can you hold a grudge and not forgive? It is so foolish. And and forgiveness is something that you grant, as Jay Adams brings out. It's It's not a feeling. Well, I don't feel like forgiving. Never mind about your feelings. Look at what the Bible says. You grant forgiveness if somebody comes to you seeking your forgiveness. And you promise not to do it again. The parable in Matthew 18, so rich. Peter thinking that, oh, boy, I'm really growing in Christ being his disciple. How many times should I forgive? Seven? <laughs> like, no, Peter, you nip it off at three. <laughs> no, that's what he's expecting to hear maybe. No, 70 times seven. The idea is it's endless. That's how often you should forgive. And that parable is just a, it's a very striking parable um, slaves forgiven this huge debt, millions of dollars. He could never repay it. He goes out and throws his fellow slave in prison because he owes a small amount that could easily be paid, maybe 80 days worth of labor or something like that. Throws him in prison, and finally it's brought to the master's attention. Summoning his Lord, he said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Isn't that the very thing we do? When we're confronted with our sin and the holiness of God, we plead, forgive me of my sin, O God, when we first come to Christ, and we're forgiven of all of that debt. When we realize that our sin was really paid for by Christ on the cross by substitution. So you see the parallel here, right? And then it goes on, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way as I had mercy on you? 
Now, for us, we've been forgiven of all of that debt. Now somebody sins against us in little petty, little small ways. And we want to exact our rights rather than just freely forgiving. It goes on, the Lord and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. See, we've been forgiven a mountain of debt. A mountain of debt. How can we harbor bitterness and be angry and grieve the Spirit of God? We are like that wicked slave every time we withhold forgiveness. Just like him. We're just like him. When we won't grant forgiveness in a certain situation, when we want to make people suffer for a little while longer, and then we'll grant it. Just like that wicked slave. We need to be quick to forgive. We don't grieve the Spirit of God. I mean... Other sins against you are a drop in the Pacific Ocean compared to the Pacific Ocean of your sin that's been forgiven by God. We really need to think that way. We really need to think. My sin is so far greater than, than, any, than the little sins that I'm, being, you know, that I'm having to deal with in home, in the workplace, in the church, wherever. And we need to realize that we need to overlook in love or we confront. Don't fall into the pattern of Harboring bitterness and stewing and outburst and all of that. Well, let's bring this to a close uh, by way of application. I submit to you what we believe doctrinally will affect our practice. Doctrine affects practice. True love for the brethren naturally flows from doctrine. Who God is, who man is, who who we are in the church, brothers and sisters of, of Christ, common children of God, speaking to Christians here, of course. And the power of the gospel can transform your behavior. You may say, but I've tried to overcome my anger outburst, or this or that, and, and, but, but I just can't do it. No, there's power in the gospel, and we need to look to that. We need to continually look and be motivated by what Christ has done for us. He's... Re- Forgiven us so much. Oh, that we would cry out more love to Thee, O Christ, because that's what we need. More love to Him. We're going to have a greater desire and passion to please Him in every respect and not to grieve the Spirit of God. The Spirit is working in us to make us holy. We're being sanctified. We're growing in Christ. We're growing in conformity to Christ. And someday we will see Him face to face. Don't grieve the Spirit. We need to have this ambition. C.H. Spurgeon says, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as the subject of my ambition for life than to keep faithful to my God till death. Isn't that a good ambition? Just to keep faithful to God. To those of you who are outside of Christ today, those of you who have yet to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no strength to obey the law of God. The only thing you can do is allow filthy, rotten words to come out of your mouth because everything is tainted by sin. Bitterness and anger are natural to you. For the Christian, it's unnatural, though we may fall into that from time to time, but it's natural for the child of Adam to do that. God's solution to you is to know the great forgiveness that can be had in Christ. If you'll confess your sins, if you'll plead with Him to forgive you, and you come to Him having all of your sins washed away, then transformation, a new heart uh, comes, and then you are able to do these things 
to some degree by the grace of God. And a final word to Christians. Sometimes these commands are, are hard. They're hard. We fall into these sins. We, we do let unwholesome words come out of our mouth. This week, every one of you likely has let an unwholesome word of some type come out of your mouth. Some word that was not unto edification. I'm not saying cursing. I'm just saying words, useless words, silly babble, critical, all of that. And we need to beware of harboring bitterness. It will wear you down. It will lead you to other sins. To have dealings with God. Ask God to uproot roots of bitterness that may be growing there. And I want you to ask yourself, is there someone today that I need to go and to seek their forgiveness? Because of some attitude, some hard attitude, maybe they, they probably don't even know. And to just seek their forgiveness and to do that for Christ's sake. Or is there someone that you need to extend forgiveness to rather than harboring bitterness? Brethren, I say it all the time, we must keep short accounts with God and with one another. We keep short accounts with Him. We sin. Yes, it may be a gross sin. We may, whatever. But we fall on our knees as quickly as we can, crying out, asking for forgiveness. And likewise with one another, when you know that you have offended and hurt someone and sinned against someone, deal with it as quick as you can. Let us pray. Gracious God, how we thank You that we could consider this portion of Holy Scripture Lord, we thank You for how practical it is and how we can relate to it so easily. Because, Lord, we have remaining sin. How I thank You that it's not reigning sin as it was before we became Christians. But, Lord, help us to conquer remaining sin. Help us to have the right motive that it's love to Christ, that we're not trying to work our way to heaven, for by works no man shall be saved. And Lord, we pray that You would make us a changed people. That You would preserve the unity of the Spirit amongst us as a church. Lord, that in the individual marriages and families, Lord, that peace would reign as these things would be implemented in a fuller measure. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.